Listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Dark Corner Podcast. I am your host, DJ Evil Dave. Dr. Brandy's sexy voice is away on a training conference in Nashville, Tennessee. I just recently finished texting her goodnight. We've been FaceTiming the last couple of days. For she's away for... Five days, I believe. She comes back Thursday, anyhow. So I'm recording this podcast alone. I'm also recording this a little early, trying to get back on schedule that we somehow got away from so that our podcasting every two weeks falls around my Friday off. Anyhow, since I'm alone, I thought I would do a topic that has been suggested for us, to us, a number of times, and that is westerns. Brandy is not a big fan of westerns. I'm okay, I can give or take them. So in the later half of this show, I'll be getting into the various tropes and kind of a brief review of many of the westerns that I have experienced. In news... There's a cat in our neighborhood that has been pestering Nobi. The latest thing is for this cat to come up on the outside windowsill and just kind of sit there, tap at the glass, whatever, and drive Nobi crazy. We have these nice wooden slat blinds that Nobi tries to get behind so he can get into the window and paw at the glass. So it's fortunate that that's not taking place right now. I do believe Nobi ran downstairs, which is good, because as you know by now, Nobi hates it when I podcast alone, because it seems to him like I'm talking to no one, and he throws a little bit of a fit. I hope you guys enjoyed our actual play D&D recording. I spoke to Christina, and she's hoping to have another go. I believe Matt is interested as well, though both of them will be away or busy for the next several weeks, so it might be a little while before we get back to it. I was planning on a once a month kind of thing anyway. Really don't have much in reviews, as it's kind of nice to have Brandy here for that as well. We have caught up on The Mandalorian, we have caught up on his Dark Materials, we have also gone and seen... The Rise of Skywalker, but that all requires a bit more in-depth conversation. Also, we have the Chinese New Year coming up, and we usually do a special for that. It'll likely be the next episode in which we address the Year of the Rat, if I'm not mistaken. We may in future also do an episode on Fallout 76, just talking more in-depth about the video game, so... 
although I've been playing a lot of that recently, I really don't see much call to talk about it now when we can do so in a future episode. It's been a while since we've done a video game-centric episode anyhow, and I think that's a good opportunity for that. So really, this uh, front section is a bit thin. There's really not much to say about the holidays that have just passed. Brandy got her Apple Watch. I got the PlayStation 4. I still have some Amazon money. I'm not sure what to do with. And New Year's, we spent playing Fallout 76 together. In fact, Midnight kind of fell upon rather surprisingly on us both. In the past, we would watch one of those live televised events in Times Square, but, you know, this time we were just hanging out together, playing some Fallout. When the clock struck 12, Brandy has gone on these training excursions in the past, but it seems particularly harder this time being separated for so long. Probably because this training excursion fell right after the holidays. So it seemed like we had Christmas and New Year's and then she was gone. It seems in the past, it was a little later in January, like perhaps a week later, that she would go away. She's in Nashville. She says hi to you all and gave me her blessing to record an episode without her. She's liking Nashville. I told her that similar to cities like Austin and New Orleans, that there'd probably be a lot of live music around, and there sure were. She ate at a place called B.B. King's, where there was a live blues band. She's getting a lot of walking in as uh, they went into the city to eat. Also, in Nashville, they still have their Christmas lights up, so she sent me a few of those pictures, and she's probably sharing them somewhere on social media as well. You can follow her on Twitter. She is BrandyWine12. I believe that's also her Instagram handle, as it is in most social media other than, of course, Facebook, which typically doesn't like people to have handles. So really not much to say here, so I suppose we could get into the dark track of the Fortnite. Walter Sickert and the Army of Broken Toys, who are a Boston-based steampunk band. Self-described as uh, Dada-esque, but I don't really hear it. To me, Dada is a bit more nonsensical, like some of the stuff uh, Einzertinde Neubauten does, which is truly just sounding like random chaos. <laughs> Walter Sickert and the Army of Broken Toys have a more structured, kind of bluesy rock sound with a slightly cabaret bit thrown in for that steampunk vibe. Probably through instrumentation, a lot of stringed instruments, violins, 
And the song I have to present to you is in that vein, kind of a bluesy, dark song called Dead Cowboys, which comes off the Soft Time Traveler album. So here is Walter Sickert and the Army of Broken Toys with Dead Cowboys. Instantly recognizable in that song is its similarities to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with the kind of slide guitar, which is typical in country western music. Gives this really eerie quality and kind of a slower tempo. 
Very bluesy, very jazzy, as you can hear the drums being played with brushes. Something oddly the Violent Femmes would do, even being kind of a punk rock band in a way. Does lend a distinctive sound when you play drums with brushes. I think once the song really gets into it, it kind of loses that Pink Floyd psychedelic vibe and settles into something more traditional as you hear what sounds like harmonica and violin. Some of the instruments more traditionally involved in country western music. I wouldn't say it's a country western song, per se. However, still eerie, cool, dramatic, definitely atmospheric, and quite emotive vocals throughout. So that was Walter Sickert and the Army of Broken Toys. I suspect the names of the musicians involved are uh, pseudonyms, or gnome de plumes. Walter Sickert being a notable British artist from the early 20th century, and then we have other musicians such as Mary Widow on mandolin and vocals, Edry on accordion, melodica, glockenspiel, and vocals, Brother Bones on guitar, you get the idea. Hi everybody, my name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And together we're the hosts of Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. What does that mean for you, the podcast consumer? Well, it means that you're going to get a lot of stories about how we used to do weird stuff to people in order to try to fix them. Do you know that we used to think diseases were caused by bad smells? And that we used to eat mummies for medicine? That's super funny. I turned to like well, thanks, and we hope you'll kind of like our show, Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. It's available every Friday wherever fine podcasts are sold or at its beautiful, picturesque home at MaximumFun.org. All right. Yeah. All right, let's get into the topic of Westerns. I wonder if I can find a Western Tropes website. Hey, here we go. Wolfpack Publishing, seven Western tropes we never get tired of. Seven's not a whole lot, but we can get into it. And we can see if we can check these off as we go through. Kind of like we did when talking about the Hallmark Christmas movies. I also have a list of some Westerns I remember seeing. I've probably seen more than this, but these are ones I remember. We can start with the dramas. Now, the Man With No Name trilogy, I have seen bits and pieces of all of them. A Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More, and The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, but The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the only one I remember seeing all of. I think I might have watched the others kind of patchwork when they were on TV. Can't recall if I stayed all the way through. I know one of them is the same basic storyline as Yojimbo, which also was the what, Bruce Willis movie, Last Man Standing? It's a story that's been done several times over of the lone gunman that goes into town that's being controlled by two rival gangs, and then each gang employs him to take out the other until he's the only one left. It's a classic story and indicates how samurai films and westerns often had similar storylines. You got that as long 
as well as uh, Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven basically being the same story of having seven random kind of heroic characters, give or take, brought together to defend a village against bandits. Good old Yul Brenner. But yeah, uh, Clint Eastwood as your typical cowboy, especially in the so-called spaghetti westerns. That is, of course, the Italian-directed western films, such as those written and directed by Sergio Leone. And I think that brings us to our first trope, and that's the lone cowboy. The gunslinger that uh, wanders from town to town, righting wrongs, and then riding off into the sunset. He's a man of few words, skilled with a gun, no nonsense. Where's this blanket as a kind of poncho, which is a different look, I think, than you get with many cowboys. It seems very unique to the man with no name. You get the cigar, the the squint that Eastwood is famous for. And in D&D speak, kind of the chaotic good character. He's not somebody who abides by the law, but somebody who more or less leans towards the good, doing the good thing, if not an illegal thing from time to time. I would like to say that the lone gunslinger is a distinctly American thing, but similar heroes have been in stories before, such as the knight errant of medieval legends and stories. For instance, Ivanhoe certainly has that quality. But as for the distinction of the gunslinger, yeah, I suppose that is a distinctly American-type archetype. That is a distinctly American archetype. And one we see later when, I suppose in the 80s, when Westerns were less in vogue, and you started to see more crime dramas in which the cowboys were replaced with loose cannon officers of the law, going back to Clint Eastwood with something like Dirty Harry, that the uh, buddy cop films soon replaced your cowboy movies, and so something like Die Hard is in some respects a variation of the lone cowboy. And even the yippee-ki-yay motherfucker line, you know, the tete-a-tete between Hans Gruber and McLean, were over these western stereotypes of the, the lone cowboy. And it's something you see again and again, especially in the western dramas of the gunslinger riding into town. Often portrayed by Clint Eastwood. The outlaw Josie Wells, for instance, or Pell Ryder, in which he's actually, I guess, a ghost that comes back for revenge. Very odd film, Pell Ryder. Of course, you have The Lone Ranger, which even the name itself shows some isolation, even though it is trusted sidekick Tonto, and of course his loyal horse, Silver. The idea of these, I guess, Texas Rangers, I think the story goes, where a lot of them got slaughtered and he was the one remaining one who would use silver bullets to end the lives of the wicked. And so if you were to dig a silver bullet out of whoever died, it would indicate that the Lone Ranger pulled the trigger. And I think they even did like a Mythbusters kind of thing on the silver bullet to see if that would be any more accurate, and it isn't. In fact, there was this series, I think, called Science of the Wild West 
that I used to watch early in the mornings before really DVR was a big thing. So I'd be watching live television before heading off to work. And yeah, they'd go over the various uh, weird scientific things about the Wild West and our preconceptions of the time as opposed to what it was really like. For instance, black powder would be so thick that in a gunfight, nobody would be able to see each other in a close range. And they used old ball bullets rather than the more familiar missile-shaped bullets that we know of today. And so they had no real accuracy, and I think rifling was a pretty new thing as well. So the idea of getting a spin in your bullet to keep it stable, you know, in the trajectory, is not that common. So yeah, black powder, you know, gunpowder just smoking up a place, plus round bullets going left and right is pretty amazing anybody could hit anything at the time. I believe the shootout at the OK Corral took place in a very small amount of space, and the powder was so thick you didn't know if you were shooting at friend or foe. I think the, uh, Italian take on westerns is interesting because there is this kind of gray moral area. Certain westerns, particularly televised western series and many of the films had this white hat, black hat approach to morality. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. Or of course there's the civilized white man and the savage Indians. But realistically speaking, that can't possibly be the way it was. It was more a case of survival, and especially in a lawless land. At this time, in the late 1800s, much of the western part of North America had yet to be settled and certainly hadn't been ratified as states in the Union. So you suppose anyone in that area would have to live by their wits and by their gun. I saw someone on Twitter say they were talking to somebody who said that the Wild West was actually safer than it is now because I guess everybody had a sidearm. Kind of one of those Second Amendment guys. <laughs> uh, to put it politely. If that was the case, there would have been no killing of Wild Bill Hickok, you know, shooting him in the back, or any number of the famous shootouts. Just the technology was different, certainly, so in that regard, yeah, perhaps they were safer because they didn't have fully automatic or semiotic weapons or bump stocks or anything like that, or <laughs> high-capacity magazines. I mean, the Gatlin gun had just come out, which is a scene in several westerns. Outlaw Josie Wells has a Gatlin gun scene. But yeah, with the uh, Italian approach to the western that looks kind of at a the morally gray area, I think is a, a closer, more interesting approach to the western. And there's something especially grand about the music of your uh, typical Italian-directed western though the additional dialogue recording is always odd, but necessary as Italian directors, even outside of Westerns, like Giallo and uh, other, like Polizai, I think they're called, the police kind of dramas, 
or just straight up Italian horror, they would hire on cast from all over the world. Americans, Germans, uh, Italians, Spaniards, really whoever was available or fit the part, and they would speak in their native tongue, and then later for even the Italian cinema, they would be dubbed over, and then would be regionally dubbed over for various nations for distribution. So it makes you wonder in the original Italian release uh, what Clint Eastwood would sound like, because I doubt they had him speak phonetically in Italian. They had someone dub his voice. I think we touched briefly upon the third trope in this list, and it's Cowboys and Indians, which of course is a rather outdated term for First Nations, First Peoples, uh, Native Americans, however you want to uh, refer to the tribes that lived in the North American region before the arrival of Columbus and later the Pilgrims. Early Westerns, of course, cited on the role of the white settler, boldly going out to settle lands promised them through manifest destiny and granted to them by their faith in God. And of course, the heathen natives who were savage and violent being an obstacle to that settling. We all know that that's a false narrative. And during Christmas, my mother-in-law was happening to watch some kind of Western. Not sure exactly what was what it was, but it did have a Cowboys and Indians kind of vibe. I think it was more Civil War era. But yeah, the natives were played by, looked like some white actors in red face. And it was a little embarrassing, but that was the way then. Of course, in this modern age, there's a somewhat more even-handed approach to presenting Native Americans. Quite humorously, in Blazing Saddles, they're played by Jewish actors, including Mel Brooks, and instead of speaking in whatever tribal language, whether Navajo or Crow or Cherokee or anything like that, they speak Yiddish. So, pretty funny. And it's especially funny if you are Mormon because the Mormons believed that uh, ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America and settled as one of the lost tribes, and that Jesus came to America and revealed himself to them. It's all in the Book of Mormon musical, I can assure you. We still see some outdated portrayals of Native Americans. Westworld, while more of a science fiction television show, definitely sets itself in a Western setting. Its depiction of the Native Americans as these savage, violent people had to get a rewrite in the second series, and I think it actually improved and was one of the more interesting storylines, is following the course of these particular tribespeople as they discovered that they were androids and not actual living beings. Caught a few episodes of Hell on Wheels as Brandy had suggested I watch a 
bit of that before podcasting because of Anson Mount. He is the lead character in this, I think, AMC original series where he plays a southern rebel. He moves west in a very Josie Wells manner in order to seek revenge on the folks that are responsible for his wife's death and possibly more than that. They haven't really gone in too deep, which is probably for the best, as even Josie Wells, the depiction of rape in that is uh, unfortunate, but certainly a reflection of the time. It is a bad time to be a woman in the Old West. Anson Mount, Brandy wanted me to talk about Helen Wills because of the Star Trek connection. Anson Mount plays Captain Pike in Star Trek Discovery, does a very fantastic job, and has uh, risen to be a lot of people's favorite starship captain, even above Kirk and Picard. Anyhow, the Native Americans in that are depicted, as you would expect, with the tomahawks and feathers and spotted horses and moccasins and scalping and all the etc. There is one uh, Native American who had been baptized and is wearing the suit, you know, suit and tie and hat, and but he's still close to his tribe for some reason. Not sure how that works, but yeah, dealing with uh, this massacre of this camp led by his family, but he rescues a woman from this uh, this massacre. It's all very odd, and uh, yeah, I guess it is in some respects reflective of the violence between the settlers and the native people in the area, but you can see kind of why. It's an invasion of sorts, but it's rarely looked at in that respect to think that the white man, well, not only the white man, but mostly the white man, moving west, that whole go west mentality, you know, pushing and settling further in this colonial manner, that that would meet with some resistance. So it's all odd how it's handled. I think in Shanghai Noon, the Jackie Chan picture, uh, the Native Americans are treated kind of oddly too. I think it's the crow that are in there. There's some really cool fight scenes and stuff, but uh, yeah, it's all very odd. Though I think uh, the correction to Westworld is one of the more interesting things. Going back to Josie Wells, I think that's another interesting approach to the Native American as well, as our outlaw encounters an old... Native American, and he takes upon a young woman who then form their own relationship, which is interesting, the old man and this young woman, and they journey with him as they head west. A lot of westerns, like Hell on Wheels and the outlaw Josie Wells, are centered around revenge, that somebody wronged somebody else, and so you got to right the wrong by seeking Great Plains justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of thing. And we see that in Unforgiven, too, one of the more unusual westerns of uh, Clint Eastwood's career, of having been this notorious gunslinger of old, known for being drunken and violent, being hired on to enact revenge on a sex worker who had been cut up. 
This sex worker is the same actress that played the girl's mother in The Crow. And very cool. Kind of a soft-spoken, kind of mousy woman. I guess I could look up her name. Anna Levine, I believe her name is. Oh, is she also in True Romance? Hmm. Desperately Seeking Susan. Oh, she's also known as Anna Thompson. Anyhow, she gets cut up. And the other sex workers gather enough money to hire on Morgan Freeman's character, uh, this other nearsighted young gunslinger, the up-and-comer, and of course Clint Eastwood as well. I remember a lot of people who like the traditional white hat, black hat westerns hating this movie because it upends all the familiar stereotypes, all the cliches of your western and presents it for the violence that it is there is no black and white morality here killing is killing and there's the whole famous line of when you uh, take a man's life you take away everything he ever had and you know killing's a hell of a thing and you get that throughout the whole film there's just this disillusionment that comes with demystifying the romance of the wild west particularly in Gene Hackman speaking to this reporter or this writer of shattering all these myths of these famous gunslingers of this guy who is known to have a, what, second or third gun, but it turned out that that was actually a reference to his penis, or a guy who shot his own foot because he couldn't get the gun out of the holster soon enough and was shot without even getting his gun out. So Unforgiven is... Very interesting in how it presents the Western so unfavorably. That said, its portrayal of women is still lacking in some regard. We're led to believe that Clint Eastwood's wife had somehow saved him miraculously from this life of drunkenness and violence. And it's a hard, jagged bitter pill to swallow thinking that you know this this woman was so perfect that he could that she could change him we don't see that we don't we only get that through the story that this incredible woman the sex workers are just a means to an end i suppose we don't get much from them other than their desire for revenge and they seem other than anna levine's character who really seems less interested in revenge than her peers. They all demand blood, and uh, it's a bit odd. I suppose in some respects that uh, reflects that they can be as obsessed with revenge as any man could, but really other than that, it's, it's a bit one note. You don't get a whole lot from the women in Unforgiven. And going back to Josie Wells, it has an interesting approach to revenge as well, as that was originally Josie Wells' um, mission statement, I suppose, is to enact revenge on the, uh, I think they were the Union troops that uh, killed his family and burned down his home. But by the end, he seems to be less interested in revenge and just wants to settle down and live the rest of his days. And to think this is around the time of the Vietnam War, you know, somewhat after. Yeah, 1976, about three years. And it takes a while to make a movie, too. So, yeah, the end of the Vietnam War was very fresh in the mind. 
that this idea of putting the violence behind you that at the very end just wanting to settle down and not lead to big shootout even though it does but being reluctant to do so i keep going back to the josie wells i it's probably because it's been a western i've seen quite often and being a very good one while we're talking about unforgiven we should talk about the sheriff this is yet another of the seven tropes of westerns unforgiven is interesting because the sheriff is not a good man He's a man that wants law and order in his town and will go to some extreme measures to keep that law and order. Often in westerns, the sheriff is the moral compass, kind of like a paladin in Dungeons and Dragons. It's uh, the moral center, the emblem of law in a lawless land, that star on the chest i mean that's immediately what you think of when you think of a western sheriff is that star with the little rounded points pinned to the chest going back to 1952 we have gary cooper in high noon playing a town marshal who at the request of his newlywed hangs up his guns and swears for a life of peace however some gang leader that he sent up several years ago, comes rolling into town, ready to call out the marshal in a shootout at high noon, hence the title of the film. And so our marshal must, in the traditional kind of El Cid uh, dramatic tension, choose between love and duty, and also with the respect to the town, you know, trying to get help from all the members of the town that he's protected so far but of course nobody's going to lend a hand to help him he's out all on his own it's really interesting if you consider that this western that is on the america's american film institute's top 100 was really reviled by certain critics and other actors i think john wayne is one of them that despised high noon for its socialist message uh yeah really interesting you know just i guess there's this idea of the lone maverick who can handle himself and what have you but in a time where people were unionizing or that sort of thing this the approach of high noon with its uh, subversive uh, kind of socialist message. Yeah, it, it turned a few uh, noses up. I happened to like High Noon okay. I think when I saw it, I wasn't quite old enough to appreciate it too much. And by then, I was a little sour on westerns, especially classic westerns. And so I think the theme might have uh, gone over my head. But it's would uh, be an interesting film to go back to i think it's more modern than folks give it credit for but yeah it definitely shows the the plight of your wild west sheriff and all the responsibilities placed on the shoulders of one man in a lawless town i just finished watching the second season of deadwood and we have bullock being the town sheriff and having his responsibilities being in a pretty lawless camp not really a 
city by any means, just a camp, but having to deal with just the different factions vying for power over this place where there's these settlements and all these claims for gold. Timothy Oliphant's uh, portrayal of Seth Bullock reminds me of, let's say, you took Bill Paxton and removed his sense of humor. <laughs> That's kind of the feeling I get from Timmy Oliphant and the way he's portraying the character. Uh, Brad Dorif is amazing in Deadwood as the Doctor. It's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen him do. I mean, considering this guy, you know, is the voice of Chucky and has been in what ever since one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But yeah, as being this um, compassionate but belligerent Doc Cochran, I got on very well with Deadwood. I didn't think I would. I think I like it better. Even well, though Hell on Wheels is growing on me a bit. Deadwood captures your attention pretty quickly just through its cast of characters and just the writing of the period. And this is writing that you get from Joss Whedon in Firefly as well. Is There's a strange kind of blend of base explicit swearing and, I guess, in the time period, highfalutin language because of what they were reading at the time. And so if you're reading these, you know, Victorian novels with this over-eloquent prose, weaving that into your common discussion and then throwing in your basic uh, creative swear words, you get that kind of Western vibe. And I think that's mostly true. I think that's particularly true of Stephen Toblowski's character, Hugo Jari, he plays a government agent and speaks with such careful phrasing and elocution that it's uh, it's quite beautiful to behold, even though he's a rather reprehensible character. It adds this kind of almost like Shakespearean vibe to the whole affair. We also get to see Anna Gunn in another somewhat thankless role as, the, uh, as Bullock's a wife by honor, I suppose. While Deadwood can be rather offensive in how it relates to race relations and, of course, women, I think there's some rather powerful women characters in it as well. And if not powerful, then at least well-rounded and interesting, which I think is more the point. So we have Molly Parker as Alma Garrett and see her in quite a few roles adding dimension from being addicted to opium to or morphine something like that to providing care to this lone survivor of a massacre this little girl to her passionately sexual relationship with Seth Bullock and her disdain for the hotelier and even her well I don't want to spoil too much in case you haven't seen Deadwood. But she goes through many different phases, and that can be said for Trixie as well, played by Paula Malcolmson, or introduced to the character after she uh, shot a John. She does play a sex worker, but yeah, her client, she shot in the head for getting a little rough with her. And we see her in many different roles as well, being in 
agent and sort of spy for Al Swearingen, the owner and operator of a saloon, to forming a relationship with Bullock's business partner. It's all very interesting and all taking place in this camp. I mean, that's why it's called Deadwood. It's all taking place in and around Deadwood, having some historical events featured, such as the killing of Wild Bill Hickok, and of course you have Calamity Jane about the place, just drunk off her feet. And one of Brandy's favorite actors, Garrett Dillahunt, is in it twice as two different characters. So that is quite something. He plays the loudmouth coward that shot Wild Bill in the back. And he also plays a murderer of women and an agent for Mr. Hurst, who is an investor interested in various claims at the camp. I think it's the different factions vying for power, one of which is uh, Cy Tolliver, played menacingly by Powers Booth. It reminds me somewhat of gangster films, and my interest in that is kind of a Game of Thrones of the Wild West, of these people playing kind of a low-down, dirty version of chess, trying to get on the top of the heap for whatever riches the town of Deadwood or the camp of Deadwood can provide. It's well worth a watch. Speaking of women, I suppose we should touch upon yet another of these tropes that I just happened across. A beautiful woman with a tragic past. This, I think, we get quite cleverly in, of all things, Westworld. Dolores Abernathy is our lead character. Uh, that goes unquestioned. Yes, we have Bernard and we have Dr. Robert Ford, played by Anthony Hopkins. Oh yeah, Bernard Lowe is played by Jeffrey Wright. But Evan Rachel Wood as Dolores is something to behold as she... Is this android just uh, programmed to be this tragic damsel in distress character and love of uh, Teddy Flood, played by James Marsden? who soon becomes the victim of uh, Ed Harris, the man in black. But through her repeated traumas, she finds a scrap of a photo of something from outside the illusion, the theme park of Westworld, and it triggers some idea of the truth and that she is not who she thinks she is. And over time... She comes to realize that she is an android and Westworld is an illusion and she takes it within her power to upset the apple cart and basically revolt. And there's a phrase that goes throughout, I believe it goes, uh, these violent delights have violent ends and reflects something that's brought up by the man in black and several other characters in Westworld is that what you do in Westworld determines who you are. Brandy and I are gamers, and I think Brandy said on several occasions that when it's been brought to her to do some particular distasteful act in a video game that she has trouble doing it. In fact, generally will not. 
at times I too cringe at certain events in a video game. There is a scene in which you have to torture somebody in Grand Theft Auto V, which I find distasteful and it's troubling each time I would have to do it. And the whole thing really isn't helped at all with the kind of light tone it takes to the torture after it because you can drive the person to the airport after the torture scene and in a weird way excuse your actions. It's very odd, very odd um, event. But that Westworld would be kind of an extension of that, of this thing in news media where playing violent games makes you a violent person. Which is not necessarily true, but at the same time there are, I guess, limits to what you should or should not do, or feel comfortable doing or not doing. I think there was a Tom Clancy game that had a will-you-torture-this-person-for-information kind of uh, quest part of it. But speaking of westerns and video games, of, yeah, of course there's Red Dead Redemption, and Red Dead Redemption 2, which the Greatest Generation podcast calls Jazz Horse, because they play it to relax, and yeah, it's just you and your horse wandering around trying not to kill your horse, because I've heard many occasions of people accidentally killing their horse by falling off a mountain, by accidentally shooting it, and it seems frustrating. It seems like if you are an actual cowboy, the likelihood of you unintentionally killing your horse is very slim. I suppose that brings us up to another of the tropes, and that is a trusty steed. And this goes back to the knight errant thing, is you have your lone gunslinger on his trusty steed going from town to town, righting wrongs, and it's hard not to compare that to your knight in shining armor on his trusty ward horse going from village to village and slaying dragons or whatever. We've already talked about uh, Silver a little bit. Interestingly, this kind of ties into The Witcher, which is something else we just binged in a short amount of time. Very much enjoyed The Witcher, though. If you are starting The Witcher, uh, keep in mind that it bounces around the timeline, so don't get confused. Just understand that it is going back and forth in the timeline, so if you see characters and you're like, wait, what? It's like, yeah, that is the same character you saw before, just... Yeah, they're just going back and forth through through time. Lots of lots of flashbacks in in The Witcher. The Witcher definitely has kind of a western vibe in a fantasy sort of setting, but Geralt has a trusted steed, I think by the name of Roach, that he speaks to and he's called out on it on several occasions, but he seems to prefer company with his horse to company with most other people. So, yeah, the trusted steed is a trope, and definitely one you get in the video game Red Dead Redemption, as you rely on your horse to get from place to place in a manageable amount of time. As if you uh, just hoof it, well, one thing is you're likely to be attacked by whatever wild critters are around. Horse kind of helps you escape that for the most bit. But yeah, just, uh, well... Knight and his horse, a cowboy and his horse, they're very similar. And going back to uh, Native Americans or the whole cowboys and Indians thing, 
is the relationship between the Native American and the horse. Um, horses aren't native to uh, the Americas. They were shipped over, uh, I think, by the early Spaniards and later on, uh, I think, settlers from Britain and similar brought horses along. Um, I think some of the native words for horses might actually be uh, similar to big dog because they kind of like a dog in some respects. You know, they can be domesticated and uh, they're a service animal. But this idea of how well a tribes person could ride a horse, especially without a, any saddle or anything, we think of that being so tied into the whole Native American ideal or archetype that it's something that was learned oh, and soon after uh, the first settlers, you know, the first time horses were traded or then eventually there were wild horses out that could be uh, tamed. When you think of the uh, lone gunslinger and his trusted steed as kind of one entity, I mean, they're, they're united and you get that really early on with the whole whistling for the horse and having it arrive and jumping off the balcony of some saloon and landing on the horse's back, which seems really dangerous for both. I mean, you're going to injure yourself and the horse, you would think. And then trick riding, of course, in westerns, you get the classic action set piece of the runaway wagon. You know, the horses go wild and your hero has to leap from his horse onto the horses of this runaway carriage and slow them down. You know, maybe they got spooked by something like a coyote or whatever. Or with your bandits, if they're robbing a train, you know, riding up on the horses and leaping from the train or leaping from the horse to the train. Your uh, cowboy and your horse are very close unit. Now, Roy Rogers, his trusted horse, Trigger. The final of these seven tropes is something we've already touched upon as well in some discussion regarding several of these westerns, and that's the shootout. It's bound to happen sometime during your western that uh, folks are going to pull out their sidearms or colts and fire at one another. Sometimes it might be the classic uh, high noon type shootout, you know, certain paces and draw and fire. Other times it might be a little bit more uh, sudden or you'll have more than two people involved. It could be the whole town. I mean, Silverado's shootout seems like that as several of the shootouts in Young Guns think the shootout is pretty big draw to why people would watch westerns. It is the action portion of a western and I think a lot of your westerns revolve around the shootout. Unforgiven shootout's a bit different. It's a shotgun and is dealt with rather quickly at the climax, but the other shootout at long range is a bit more drawn out, I suppose, as someone just shot in, I think, the gut and keeps asking for water. Yeah, Unforgiven definitely upsets the whole expectations of what a shootout entails. Outlaw Josie Wales, the final shootout is more of a siege. So what are some other draws to the Western other than the things we've discussed so far? I think cinematography has a well-earned spot in why people watch Westerns. There's something about the wild, untamed 
West on film that is compelling and often awe-inspiring. may have some incredible canyons or some great plains or just untamed wilderness just from place to place or something like Colorado in the snow or great vast deserts of something like uh, Death Valley or the Rocky Mountains. Just all that untamed nature is something to behold. And a lot of that still exists here in the States. We're fortunate to have it. A lot of unsettled land. Fortunately, a lot of that's because of the National Forest Reserves is to preserve some natural land and have it not be mined or have it be optioned for oil or whatever. Westerns look really good on a wide screen where you can see the stunning landscapes in full color. I think this is what makes some westerns particularly odd in that they color correct and they draw out the color or give it a sepia tone or something. Hell on Will seems to do a little bit of that. It seems a little blue tone. Westworld, I think, pretty much straight up presented its wilderness as is. I think, for the most part, Deadwood does the same, even though most of Deadwood takes place in the camp, and so you don't get a whole lot of landscape. But I definitely think that uh, is a big draw, especially for your John Ford-type westerns. I'd like to go over a few westerns that I haven't talked about. I guess Django Unchained is somewhat of a western, even though it takes place, a lot of it does, in the Deep South, and it's really more about uh, slavery, though it does have some western elements to it. Bone Tomahawk, a very highly revered amongst the horror community, but I found its unflinching approach to violence to be too much. It was too gruesome, and I thought how they approached this kind of weird, almost I guess maybe inbred or whatever version of the Native American to be troublesome, and it was a little awkward even how they presented it, like even other natives were like, yeah, we don't talk about those guys. They're like troglodytes to us. They're they're not us. I don't think they quite balanced that very well. And just uh, even seeing how this weird offshoot treated their women by hobbling them, by removing limbs and blinding them and keeping them perpetually pregnant, it was all just too gruesome. I like the performances in it. But yeah, I'm, I can do horror, but even this was, it was a bit too much. And I think just, yeah, there's, there's shocking for shocking's sake and then shocking to tell a story. And yeah, I thought it was more shocking for shocking's sake. But I think I'm in the minority in that regard. Wider, not very highly regarded. I can kind of see why. I remember, I remember it being not all too good. Uh, Zorro is interesting in that it's a Mexican kind of approach to a western and a bit Robin Hoodish too. I mean, based on, I guess, an actual folk hero is this uh, kind of a Scarlet Pimpernel type uh, Spanish hero that would fight for the Mexican people against other Spaniards that were holding them down. I guess around the time of the, I guess, Mexican kind of revolution that was around that time. At least that's the vibe I get from playing Red Dead Redemption. Talked a little bit about Young Guns, notable for having 
uh, the Brat Pack as the cast and telling the story of Jesse James, kind of in a flattering manner for Jesse James and the Regulators. True Grit, a remake, Coen Brothers film, so kind of highly stylized. I liked moments of it. Once Upon a Time in the West, I remember liking. I think that had Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson. Comedies, we talked a little bit about Blazing Saddles. Still funny, really strange, weird ending. Uh, I could see some younger people struggling with it because of its uh, approach to racial humor, but I think the way it's presented is actually quite funny and poignant. Maverick, kind of weird to watch now with Mel Gibson in it, but I remember liking it at the time. Cat Blue, I remember seeing it, but don't remember much about it. Frisco Kid's a fun one. Harrison Ford and Gene Wilder. Okay, the IMDb synopsis says of the Frisco Kid, a Polish rabbi wanders through the Old West on his way to lead a synagogue in San Francisco, and on the way he is nearly burnt at the stake by uh, Native Americans almost killed by outlaws. Uh, Yeah, he sides up with um, Harrison Ford as kind of a gunslinger type to help lead him to San Francisco and they form this friendship and I think there's some maybe gay panic type humor in it maybe not it's uh, hard to tell it's been a while since I've seen it but uh, I remember them bunking together and having that be a funny scene and I'm not sure how in retrospect they treated that humor but yeah Wagons East was a John Candy uh, movie about a bunch of settlers that were headed west who got sick of all the trials and tribulations of heading west and decided to turn their wagons around and go back home. And having the developers or a main developer in the west try to prevent them from doing so because if they turned around and head back many others would head back as well and there goes the whole great western expansion a pretty funny film uh, i remember and just the concept in itself is pretty funny cannibal the musical based on an actual legal account of a man who was tried and i believe was acquitted of cannibalism wasn't the Dahmer party but i think it was after just some idiot who claimed that he could lead a party across the Rocky Mountains and he didn't know what the hell he was doing and he got them stuck up there but he came back as the one lone survivor because he apparently uh, ate the others. Shanghai Noon we briefly talked about Jackie Chan doing his uh, patented action comedy stuff along with Owen Wilson pretty funny especially for the peeing on the silk to bend the bar scene i remember that one pretty clear also being named john wong and sound like john wayne and having that be a bad cowboy name i also remember shanghai knights not being good at all being very inferior sequel two mules for sister sarah once again a clint eastwood role in more of a comedy vibe and kind of having a bit of a romance as well as the synopsis. Nun Sarah, played by Shirley MacLaine, is on the run in Mexico and is saved from cowboys by Hogan, played by Clint Eastwood, who is preparing for a future mission to capture a French fort. 
The pair become good friends, but Sarah never does tell him the true reason behind her being outlawed. If I remember, the final shootout takes place around a mission, like a Spanish mission with the church bell and everything. If I remember correctly. See other Western things. I believe there's a French comic book called Blueberry that is Western themed. The anime Trigun has some Western themes in it, and there's some references to actual Westerns. I believe the priest character is very Django inspired. He carries around this coffin with him that's full of guns, and it's all science fiction meets the Wild West sort of vibe that you get in Firefly and Serenity as well. The Mandalorian has some Western elements, which are really pleasing. The Mandalorian having kind of this Clint Eastwood vibe, though really the whole Mandalorian Baby Yoda thing seems more Lone Wolf and Cub to me, but like we were saying before, samurai movies and westerns, they seem interchangeable. And of course we talked about Westwood so this has been kind of a rambling discussion on uh, Westerns. I didn't have anything too uh, written out. I just took where the conversation led me. And so hopefully that kind of discusses uh, the whole Western genre altogether. Since this is a show from, you know, take looking at pop culture from the darker perspective, I guess I should bring up that... The Western aesthetic has been adopted by a number of gothic rock musicians. I'm thinking of The Cult, for one thing. Also, The Mission UK, Sisters of Mercy kind of had a little bit of that. There's Theater of Hate with their song, Do You Believe in the West World? Fields of the Nephilim, the whole band looks like they're some kind of posse from the Wild West. And Don Razor in particular has some Western-themed songs. And I think with a number of British people, there is a fascination with the Wild West as being something that didn't exist in their history. It's something uniquely American. Much like the knights in Shining Armor is kind of a fascination for us Americans, because that's not something we have experienced in our past, unless we look at our heredity going back to Western Europe. Those of us that can look back to Western Europe, not all of us Americans do. Which is something I didn't address either in, in regard to Westerns is the portrayal of the black American. Many Westerns take place just after the Civil War, right after the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, this is addressed very early on in Hell on Wheels as there's a number of black American workers on the railroad addressing how they have to work harder to earn any respect and still get paid less than the white man. It's my understanding that actually, statistically, black Americans made up about 25% of the range workers in the Wild West. We're talking ranch hands, farmers, 
homesteaders, whatever you want to address them as. But seeing how they're uh, treated in a lot of Westerns, there's a lot of racism towards uh, the black man or woman, as you get with, I believe, Danny Glover's role in Silverado. You also have a few uh, black characters in Deadwood, many in Hell on Wheels, and I think that is one of the larger appeals is to see these uh, former slaves and their new life in the Wild West and trying to make something of uh, themselves in uh, this new frontier, but still falling back on the old racism that's still inherent. Uh, the struggle is real, and it uh, definitely showcases that in Alan Wills. Just something odd about the lead character is he is a former slave owner, but he seems kind of cool. I mean, other than being kind of a drunkard, and it's odd. I think the same approach was with Mel Gibson's character in The Patriot, where he was a slave owner, but was pretty cool to his slaves and fought the British and whatever. Very odd. The Chinese uh, also being represented. We see the Chinese in Deadwood and a recreation of an actual event of two warring Chinese factions fighting each other, uh, one with hatchets in the hatchet gang, which brings me back to, I think it was one of the police actions, something like that, of a Jackie Chan story of actually taking place in China with the hatchet gang, but you had to have uh, this Chinese gang taking out another Chinese gang with hatchets, though some of them dressed up as Chinese, but actually being uh, Caucasian. I haven't seen much of the Chinese in Hell on Wheels, which is odd because we know that the Chinese worked on the railroad. They often were giving the most dangerous jobs, as this was during around the time of the Boxer Rebellion and a lot of Chinese citizens were being shipped to America uh, in the promise of a better life, only to serve on the railroad in a very, very dangerous capacity. Here in uh, Ogden, where we had the railroad pass through, I mean, we have a Union station here. Not far from us is Promontory Point, where the West and East Railroads met, the Golden Spike. That's kind of a big thing around here. There's supposedly places along the tracks where at night you can hear Chinese speaking. This was something written in one of the Haunted America books about haunted places in Utah. Is just along the railroads you just hear people speaking in Chinese. Very odd. We have a lot of Chinese restaurants around here too for, you know, just the people that settled here after the railroad. Uh, is there any other... Like, thing to talk about. I think we've touched upon everything uh, under the sun that's setting and I'm about to ride off into. Anyhow, this has been my discussion on westerns, as rambly as it was, but hey, I've just taken where the conversation's in me, kind of wandering town to town like a gunslinger. Uh, hopefully, Brandy will be back for the next recording, which should be the Chinese New Year special. Uh, so until then, um, keep your boots dry. All right, that's it for me. Bye. You have been listening to the Dark Corner Podcast with David and Brandy Jacola. 
Find other episodes on darkcornerpodcast.com. And special thanks go out to Tom Elliott for kindly hosting our podcast. The intro song is Say by Dark Souls Day from the album X Lives. The outro is Silence by Defect86 from the album Ultramarin. The dark track was offered as a promotional item or was submitted by the artist or artist's representative and no infringement of copyright is intended. If you like our show, or perhaps don't but know someone who might, please recommend us to your weird friends. You can also help out the podcast by rating and reviewing us on your podcatching device of choice. Wish to contact us with feedback or perhaps even a suggestion for the point? Email us at thedarkcornerpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at darkcornercast. You can also like us on Facebook. The Dark Corner Podcast has both a group and a fan page. You can also listen to Brandy on Live from the Edge, the Star Trek Discovery podcast on Trek FM. If you're in Ogden on a Saturday night, come see me DJ and run tech at the Ogden Comedy Loft. Doors open at 8. Until next time.